Please uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 11. And we're going to look at these uh, 10 verses the next two weeks, meaning this week and next week. Thought I could get through them in one. Can't. So we're going to take two weeks to look at these uh, 10 verses. And I will just tell you as you read this, that we're again dealing with one of those hard words, one of those very, very challenging passages uh, in God's Word. But as you recognize and acknowledge that, and what I'm referring to is what comes at the end of this passage, uh, the hardening of those whose hearts are hardened in their unbelief. As you, as you reflect upon that, let me remind you of what I said last week. Uh, refer you to the last couple of verses of this 11th chapter. Where Paul ends up is where we want to end up. We want to end up on our knees before the majesty of a great and glorious creator-redeemer in worship. So that's where we want to end up. That's where I trust we will end up, even as we think about these things. So read with me at Romans 11, beginning at verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to, knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is God's word. We need his help in understanding it, so let's pray. Lord, we do need your help. We ask you to come by your spirit, Lord Jesus Christ. By your spirit, walk among us. Open our eyes, our ears our hearts, uh, incline our wills so that as we uh, encounter this, your word, we are taught, we are comforted, we are encouraged, and we are engaged and then enabled to live in light of what you have for us here. So, so come, Lord Jesus, and help us, we ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. One of, the, um, one of the really great challenges in pastoral ministry 
is uh, walking with people through disappointment. And what makes it so challenging is not only the disappointment itself, uh, the disappointment of losing a job, the disappointment of having a wayward child, the disappointment of having an illness diagnosed that is life-threatening, the the disappointment of financial reversal, the disappointment of death. Uh, It isn't just those disappointments that make pastoral ministry challenging. They are real. But here's the deeper challenge of pastoral ministry. The deeper challenge has to do with the deeper disappointment. Um, And in the midst of the disappointments that people encounter in the course of their lives, that ultimately leads to disappointment in God, disappointment with God, disappointment because things didn't work out the way they thought, the way we thought they would, the way we expected they would. And at the end of the day, the one who is ultimately in the dock, right, the one who is ultimately the issue is God himself. So the challenge always is to try to deal with folks and their disappointment related to God. God didn't come through. God has failed. But in point of fact, and this is a really, really challenging thing, in point of fact, God is not the problem. It isn't that God isn't big enough or strong enough. It isn't that God is lacking in some way or failing in some way. The problem really is on our side. And honestly, the specific problem is that we're not familiar enough with him and his ways so as to be able to interpret rightly the disappointments that come to us, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, in the midst of this sad world. That's the real problem. And I know that's strong medicine. This last um, Wednesday, uh, a group of guys uh, began a study in Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. And, and in that first discussion, at least the first discussion I was a part of, dealing with the first chapter, and as we begin to unpack this idea of, of idolatry, the, the idols that are deep in the fabric of our hearts, this theme emerged in our conversation that sometimes God takes us through real hell in order to free and deliver us from our attachment to false gods. And what I said to the guys Wednesday night is what I'm saying in a slightly different way here. What I said to the guys Wednesday night, now is the time to get this clear in our minds. Now is the time to get it clear in our minds, in our heads, that God can and often does lead us through extraordinarily difficult painful times of disappointment and loss to disconnect us from the idolatries 
that are woven deep into the fabric of our hearts. And now's the time to get this clear in our heads before the disappointments come. So that when they come, at some level, I'm ready for them. If you read Romans 9 through 11, just sort of theologically, right? You know, if you read Romans 9 through 11, uh, wanting to discuss and debate the, the theological questions of Israel and what's going to happen with Israel and who is Israel and that kind of stuff, there's some benefit in that. But let me tell you where the real benefit comes. The real benefit comes in reading Romans 9 through 11 through the lens of Paul's personal experience. You read 9 through 11 autobiographically, not theologically so much, although there's a ton of profound theology here. If you read Romans 9 through 11, you are listening in on Paul's conversations with himself and with others as he deals with their disappointment and even his own disappointment, engaging that disappointment, engaging the confusion that comes with disappointment over this simple question, the question that occupies him beginning at verse 1 of chapter 9, the unbelief which characterizes the vast majority of his kinsmen, his brothers, his sisters, the Jews. That's the canvas. That's the, that's the, the backdrop for understanding this. And Paul has indicated to us his anguish over this. He does it in the first couple of verses of chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Right? Don't you have relatives who are not believers? Don't you, don't you weep as you pray? Don't you, doesn't your heart break that they don't see what you see? That's what Paul, his heart is breaking over this stuff, folks. This is not abstract theological reflection in some ivory tower someplace. This is the Apostle Paul in anguish over their unbelief. Chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer is that they might be saved. This is intensely personal for Paul. The Jews are rejecting the gospel in fact, they've repeatedly tried to kill Paul. They've charged him with overthrowing the faith of the fathers. And what's Paul's response? It's what your response is. When people reject the thing that is most precious to you, it breaks your heart. Now, in the midst of that, Paul is working through these questions, these issues that have emerged as he's interacted with Jews across 25 plus years of ministry. And the primary and first question that Paul has had to answer is in chapter 9, verse 6. The question, has God's word failed? He's being 
He's being charged with preaching a gospel, the logical conclusion of which, because of the unbelief of the Jews, is that God's promise has failed. And he says, no, no. And for the next two chapters, he argues that the purpose of God hasn't failed, the promise of God hasn't failed, the word of God hasn't failed. There is a true Israel within Israel, and it is in that true Israel where that purpose and promise and word are fulfilled. It is in this elect people in the midst of the elect nation. It is in them that this promise is fulfilled. They are the true seed of Abraham. But here's the really striking thing. We've been over this. This is just to get us up to speed. The really striking thing is that it isn't just these Jews within Israel who have responded, who are the true seed of Abraham, but now there are Gentiles who are flocking to this gospel, and they are considered, they are viewed as being true sons and daughters of Israel. They are the true seed of Abraham along along with those who have embraced the gospel and have believed the gospel. And the apostle has said, that's where the promise of God is fulfilled. His promise hasn't failed. His promise is being fulfilled. His word hasn't failed. In those two chapters, that's what he's arguing for. And I want you to notice this. I've talked about it, mentioned it a couple of times. As Paul makes this argument, remember that again and again and again and again he is grounding his argument not in theological speculation, but in the teaching of Scripture. Remember that fully one-third of all of Paul's citations from the Old Testament contained in his 13 letters, out of all of those citations, fully one-third of them appear in these three chapters. He's grounding his argument in the Old Testament Scriptures, showing from the Old Testament Scriptures that God's promise not in any point has failed. So now in chapter 11, he comes to this next major question, this next big question. Has God rejected his people? Paul, it looks like as you're outlining this Argument, and you get to the end of chapter 10 with this citation from Isaiah 65. All day long, this is God speaking, all day long, I, God, have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul, it sounds like what you're saying, that because Israel has rejected God, God has rejected Israel. And he's going to answer through this 11th chapter. In the same way he answered that first question, absolutely not. God has not rejected Israel. Has God's promise failed? No. Has God rejected his people? No. And in these first ten verses, I'm going to suggest four things that we want to observe to unpack that that answer that he gives, that answer, no. He gives first an initial response. Then he gives a threefold answer to the question. Then he affirms God's grace yet again. He can't get away from it. And then finally he works out the implications. We're going to get about halfway through those four points this morning. 
We're going to look at the initial response, and we're going to look at the first part of the threefold answer. And then next week we'll pick up the rest. So as Paul hears this question, uh, this question of God rejecting his people, there is initially a response. Has God rejected his people? The ESV in verse 1 renders the phrase, by no means. By no means. But that rendering really feels weak. It really feels weak. Versions like the old King James that render that phrase, God forbid, gets much closer to the intensity that Paul feels as he responds to that question. His initial response, he's not yet giving an answer, he's just responding, right? And he's responding just as his grief and sadness over unbelief in Israel comes from the depth of who he is. So this initial response comes from the depth of who he is. And he is in effect saying, are you kidding? God reject his people? You must be nuts. You must be crazy. You must have taken leave of your senses. By no means, not for a minute, God forbid. It's a phrase that Paul uses six times so far in Romans. He uses it two times in chapter 3. He uses it two more times in chapter 6. And he uses it two more times in chapter 7. And here's the interesting thing about his use of this phrase. It seems that it is always used in connection with a question or a statement, a comment, that calls into question the integrity of God. Think about it. Chapter 3, he uses it twice in response to questions that come because of his preaching of the gospel, questions that come like this, is God unfaithful? Are you crazy? Is God unjust? Are you crazy? And then in chapter 6, does God's grace lead to sin? What are you thinking? Does God's grace encourage sin? Does God's grace promote sin? Because we're saved by grace, does God's grace become a license for sin? A permission to do whatever you want to do. Hey, Jesus died. I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. I'm free. Booyah! Let's go party. Paul's response, have you taken leave of your senses? What's in question in in chapter 3 and in chapter 6? You see, these things are connected to the God who is a God of justice and a God of righteousness. A God of faithfulness. To question whether or not God is faithful, to question whether or not He is just, is to call into question the very being and existence of God. Same thing with respect to grace in chapter 6. It's God's grace that God's grace would lead to sin, would be a license for sin. It's unthinkable. And then in chapter 7, 
Is the law sin? Doesn't it lead to death, Paul, by the way you describe it? God's law, the law that he gives, is it sin? Does it lead to death? Again, you have to be crazy. You have to be crazy. And Paul responds in the same way to this question. Has God rejected his people? You must be mad. You must be mad. Now, why is his response so powerful, so poignant? Why why this visceral response from the core of his being? Let me suggest this. It's like Paul is saying, and I think this is fair. I think this is legitimate, looking past the words, the black words on the white page to try to capture and catch some of the impact of them. It's like Paul is saying, look, I know this is hard for you. I know this is hard for you. This idea that God's people are rejecting the gospel, the gospel that they've been entrusted with. They're rejecting Christ, the Christ who comes from them. It's hard for me, too. And I've spent 25 years wrestling with these things, praying, struggling, reading, writing, praying some more, struggling some more, thinking deeply about these things. And I've been answering this question day after day, month after month, so I understand why the question comes. And I understand the confusion and the disappointment and the anguish of those who would ask it. But... But, do you realize what you're saying? Do you realize what you're saying? If you say, folks, this is incredibly important and incredibly pastoral. If you say that God has rejected his people, you're saying that God has broken his promise. And if God breaks that promise, What possible hope could you have? What possible assurance could you have that God would keep any other promise that he's made? God made a promise to his people. The implication of God breaking his promise is frankly that one or both of two things is true. If God makes a promise and that promise is not fulfilled, it means one or both of two things. Number one, God is not big enough, not strong enough to keep his promise. Number two, he lied in the first place and had no intention of keeping it, which means he's not good. If God, my friends, you read the scriptures and you see a promise in the scriptures, you understand the very being and integrity of the God of heaven and earth is bound up in that promise. And if that promise fails, whether a promise made to national Israel, the national Israel in view in chapter 11, whether a promise made to that national Israel or to Gentiles who have been gathered in and grafted onto the tree, Any promise, the very being and integrity of the God of heaven and earth is bound up with that promise. And if that promise fails, it fails for one 
or both of two reasons. He's not strong enough to keep his promise or he never meant what he said in the first place. That's why Paul's response and reaction is so visceral. That's why before he gets into a reasoned argument, he basically rips his chest open and dumps his heart out on the table. Are you kidding me? Do you realize what is at stake if this promise is not kept? There's a lesson here, folks. Before we put God in the dock, before we ask questions, even in the midst of our disappointments, even in the midst of our disappointments, we need to ask the question, what is the implication of the idea that is resident in the question? What's the implication here? Someone has said, maybe more than one person, someone has said the theology of the first glance is usually wrong. The better thing is to stop and ask, what is the implication here? And I think Paul understands I think Paul understands the significance of all of these questions. Again, that the issue is not with God. The issue is more on our side. On our failure properly to understand, properly to assess, properly to consider my very real disappointments in the larger context of the being, the very existence, and the integrity of God. If the fault is with God, my friends, Purely and simply, bottom line, if the fault is with God, if God has failed, then God is not God, and there is no hope. There's no hope. There's no hope. So Paul's initial response is this this existential soul dump. Right? We talk about data dumps, you know. This is an existential, heartfelt soul dump. May it never be. It cannot be. Or else everything crashes down. So that's the initial response. May it never be. And then here's his answer. He begins to give an answer to this question. And as I said, it's a threefold answer and you can see it. In verses 1 and 2, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the personal part of the answer. The second part of the answer, which we'll look at next week in verse 2, is the covenantal part of the answer. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's covenant language. And then the third answer is the scriptural answer. And there's the apostle again, grounding everything he's saying, ultimately in the scriptures. And it's the example of Elijah and his post-combat experience, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Elijah ends up in a cave, depressed, after his encounter with the 450 prophets of Baal. 
And God gives him an answer to his complaint. So it's a threefold answer. There's the personal, the covenantal, and the scriptural. The personal answer. Paul says, has God rejected his people? By no means. And what is the proof? I myself am the proof that he hasn't rejected his people. For I am one of his people. I am one of the nation. That is, I am an Israelite. I am a descendant, a literal physical descendant of Abraham. I am a member not only of the physical tribe of Abraham, or a descendant of Abraham, but I am a member of the physical tribe of Benjamin. He can trace his lineage back to Benjamin. I am a Christian, one who has embraced Jesus Christ, and I am from the nation. And that's proof that God has not rejected his people. That's proof that God has not rejected his people. Now, as we think about this, we have to remember what it is that Paul has said earlier. We have to remember, as we think back through 9 and 10, that it was never God's intention. It was never God's intention. This is clear from the passages that the apostle cites. It was never God's intention or plan that every physical descendant of Abraham would be saved. It was never his intention, right? Ishmael and Isaac are both literal physical descendants of Abraham, but it was never God's intention that both of them should be saved. It was God's intention that Isaac would be saved. Jacob and Esau, both literal physical descendants of Abraham. This is where the challenge is, folks. This is where the woe thing comes in, where our eyes sort of glaze over and we, and we get a headache. But it's the teaching of Scripture. It was never God's intention, never God's purpose that both Jacob and Esau be saved. It's challenging. It's deep. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. Jacob I have loved. Those are the two examples that the apostle uses. And you remember from chapter 9 that he interacts with those who are asking these questions as they hear this teaching. Who can complain against God? Is God again unjust, unfair in this? And what's the answer he gives? It's a twofold answer. Don't ask for fairness. Don't ask for justice. You don't want fairness and justice. That's not what Isaac got. That's not what Jacob got. What they got was mercy. Sovereign, electing, choosing mercy that rescues particular sinners out of the morass, the abyss, the condemnation, the prison of sin and death. And he's going to come back to this. So it was never, never God's intention. Never God's purpose that every particular descendant of Abraham would be saved. Israel is called. The nation is called. They are a chosen people. They are an elect nation. We'll look at this more next week. They are chosen to privilege. They are elected unto privilege. But there is an election unto salvation that we distinguish from election unto privilege. And it is that elect 
number within Israel, together with those who are being summoned out of the nations of the earth who make up this people of God. So has God completely rejected Israel, entirely cast the nation aside? No, he has not. He remains faithful. He is being faithful. He is working out his purpose. I want to read a really good sermon on this. Wait until I get mine in print? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones, in, in volume 11, or in the volume on chapter 11 of Romans, has a marvelous sermon in which he works out the implications of the fact that God has not failed. He is accomplishing his purpose. He has been accomplishing his purpose. And his purpose is to preserve his church. His purpose is to gather, collect, preserve his people. And if he doesn't do it, it will not happen. It will not happen. If the church is left to itself, It will be in the tank in 15 months, if not 15 minutes. It is God who is accomplishing and working out his purpose in the midst of Israel and among the nations of the earth. And Paul is saying here, the evidence of that is I, myself. I am from this nation and even the tribe of Benjamin. Now, here's the thing we don't want to lose sight of. We don't want to lose sight of that Paul's not the only one. And we'll look at this again a little bit more, but that's why this passage from the experience of Elijah is so significant. God, Elijah basically said the same thing. I'm the only one. Everything else, your purpose is failing. Everything's falling apart. Wah, wah, wah. And God says, Elijah, in effect, says, back to your post, dude. Back to your post. There are 7,000. I'm going to suggest to you that that's not a literal number. I'm going to suggest to you that it is a powerfully pictorial number. It is 7 times 10 times 10 times 10. Seven times ten to the third power. It is the perfect and complete number. Seven and ten, the perfect and complete number put on steroids. And what is God saying to Elijah? Not only is it the case that you are surrounded by others who have not bowed the knee to Baal, it is a perfect and complete number. So back to your post, dude. We need to remember that Paul, when he says, in pointing to himself, suggesting that in him the fulfillment of God's purpose is being worked out, he is not the only one. He's not the only one. People say, they'll say to me sometimes, how come the Jews rejected Jesus? They didn't. They didn't. Acts 2, first sermon preached, 3,000 were added to the church. Acts 5, verse 14, more than ever, this is Luke's comment on what was going on in Jerusalem, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. 
Acts 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and even priests were coming to the faith. And then you get back to the end of the, the book, Acts 21, 20, when Paul arrives in Jerusalem having, having been in Ephesus and met with the elders, he goes from that place to Jerusalem and he's greeted by James who says, you see, brother, you see how many thousands there are among us who have believed? There were thousands, my friends. Now, in the context of Paul's experience over the subsequent 25 years when he would go to a synagogue and he would preach the gospel and that gospel would be rejected. It looks like widespread unbelief is what characterizes the Jewish Jewish response. But folks, in the midst of that widespread rejection, the gospel of God is the power of God for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek There were Jews, hundreds of them, thousands of them, who were responding to the gospel. And folks, that has continued to be the case across the centuries, down to the present time. Paul, in pointing to himself, is encouraging folks to think beyond their questions and and to look at the reality that surrounds them. And the reality is that God's purpose is being worked out among the Jews. And they are responding to the promised Christ. And they are embracing him. And it's continued to happen down across the centuries to this very day. Some of you know the name Meredith Klein. Meredith Klein has influenced a whole generation of Old Testament scholars. He's dead. He's gone. He's in glory, having a great time. But he has left behind himself a legacy of people like Mark Futato and Richard Pratt and even Bruce Waltke, who's the living heir to the throne of being the supreme Old Testament scholar in our day. Meredith Klein, it's not an Irish name, it's not a Vietnamese name, it's a Jewish name. And Meredith Klein, most influential professor I had, whose legacy populates Covenant Seminary, Westminster Seminary, Reformed Seminary, a Jew, a Jew who embraced Jesus Christ. Some of you were here six years ago this past February when Mike Francis, my good friend from DeLand, preached my installation service. Mike Francis grew up in a Jewish household, a pagan, unbelieving household, went to the University of California, Berkeley, was an English major. In his junior year, took a course from a Jewish atheist in the poetry of John Donne. And it was reading the poem, Good Friday 1613, that led Mike Francis, a Jew, born in a Jewish household, taking a class in poetry from a Jewish atheist 
It was that poem that by the grace of God converted him. Folks, we want to be encouraged by this. Has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. Look at Paul. Look at countless thousands. Look at Meredith Klein. Look at Mike Francis. They're the evidence that God's purpose has not failed, will not fail. And I think there's another accent to this initial response to the question, Paul's personal response, look at me. He's not seeking to draw attention to himself, my friends. He's seeking to draw attention to the majesty, the grandeur, the greatness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that's why he comes back in verse 5 again to talk about grace. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Who's the one who's speaking this? Again, think autobiographically. Don't think theologically. Think Apostle Paul, least of all of the apostles. Think Apostle Paul, who describes himself as the chief of sinners. And don't try to compete with him in this. Because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if he says he is chief of the sinners so that he might magnify the majesty of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, he's saying that to be a comfort to those who are less sinners than he is. And he can say, nobody's the sinner that I am. So nobody can use his or her sin as an excuse for rejecting the grace of God, saying my sin is too big, it's too great. Nobody can say that. And remember who this greatest of all sinners is. The one who persecuted the church. The one who was there at Stephen's death. Acts 8.3, Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's the Paul who's saying this, answering autobiographically, look at me, God's purpose hasn't failed. God's grace has reached even me, the one who took men away from their wives, took wives away from their husbands, took parents away from their children, signed their death warrants, casting them in prison. God's grace reached even me. If you've seen the film Amazing Grace, and I know many of you have, you may remember this incredibly poignant scene a couple of times in the film. One time I remember particularly, John Newton, John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, having a flashback to the cargo ships he captained, having a flashback to the bowels of those cargo ships, where men and women were chained in abysmal 
and disgraceful conditions. Flashbacks. Seeing those images. Folks, I'm telling you, I don't know this for sure, but I'm telling you, I don't think Paul's memory got erased when he became a Christian. I think he lived with Acts verse 3 for the rest of his life. Seeing the faces of those whose deaths were his responsibility. And he would say, there's one explanation for why I'm standing here right now. One and only one. Don't locate it in me. It's not my ethnicity. It's not my giftedness. It's not my righteousness. There is one explanation for why I'm standing here at all, and that is the grace of God in Jesus Christ alone. Alone. Paul would say with John Newton, two things I know. I am a great sinner. And Jesus is a great Savior. This gets personal. How do you see yourself? And how do you see God? Do you see God as a conundrum to be figured out? Do you see yourself as possessing the intellectual capabilities, the capacities required to figure out the conundrum? Or with Paul and John Newton, do we see ourselves as profoundly, desperately needy sinners and God as lavish, lavish in his grace? rescuing those who don't deserve it. Psalm 40, verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Grace, grace, God's grace. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that whether Paul or John Newton or any other person who names the name of Christ and stumbles along this path of Christian discipleship, there's only one explanation for why any of us is here in the first place or will make it to the end. That is your lavish, lavish Love, mercy, and grace. Would you please encourage our hearts with these things? Again, through this week, as we look in the direction of being reminded of them at the Lord's table next Lord's Day, press these things into our hearts, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.